0: Welcome to this episode of the Novara Law Podcast: Cybersecurity and Arissa. My name is Jenna Hilgenbrink, associate attorney here at Novara Law, and with me today is senior partner Paul Cadenacci in our Arissa practice group. Paul, how are you doing today?
1: Doing well. How are you?
0: Good. Um, can you just give our listeners just a brief introduction of who you are and what it is that you do at Novara Law?
1: Sure. So uh, my role today at the with Novara Law is I lead the ERISA practice group. Uh, so. Vast majority of our clients uh, are single and multi-employer uh, employee benefit plans. So, uh, in layman terms, what that means is that these are largely collectively bargained plans. Uh, a large majority of them are in the building and construction trades industry, uh, but we also work with some single employer plans, such as the uh, Michigan Teachers Association and some of their uh, affiliated benefit plans. Uh, so, largely, what we do is um, we ensure compliance uh, not only with relevant sections of ERISA uh, but also the Internal Revenue Code and then we provide assistance on a variety of other things that affect their plans such as uh, audit reports, uh, plan investments. Uh, we also look at uh, implementation of various rules uh, under health care such as the Affordable Care Act, COBRA, uh, GINA, Consolidated Appropriations Act as uh, a variety of other uh, kind of subcategories of regulation that affect um, not only health and welfare uh, but also pension plans, including defined benefit, defined contribution, four hundred and one k, as well as joint apprenticeship and training plans, uh, as a lot of our funds um, provide those on their own, and that's a key component of the benefits, not only to the union members uh, to get those train to get that training uh, for them to be able to do their jobs, but also for the contractors uh, that are hiring those union members to ensure that they're properly trained, uh, both in the specifics of their trade as well as in safety regulations such OSHA.
0: That sounds like a huge role with lots of responsibility. And another thing we're talking about today is cybersecurity in that realm. So I guess to start us off and set the scene, what role does cybersecurity play in ERISA and why is cybersecurity so important?
1: So it's a burgeoning field for a few reasons. Uh, the Probably the principal one is in some respects because the Department of Labor has taken uh, an interest in it last year issued some guidance on it, which they foreshadowed uh, at a variety of different trade shows Um, An individual from the Department of Labor spoke at a cybersecurity conference and signaled uh, last year that, hey, some guidance was coming down the pipe uh, regarding cybersecurity and the role it would play uh, for plans like ours. In terms of why it's a big deal, these plans generate a tremendous amount of data. Uh, So what happens is the way that these uh, plans are structured is you have this board of trustees uh, and they're providing a benefit, and again, it might be health and welfare, uh, it could be pension, it might be training, uh, and in so doing, they're absorbing and getting a lot of information from the plan participants and union members. Uh, just think about that from the perspective of, you know, healthcare, for example. Uh, a large majority of our plans are what we call self-funded, uh, meaning that the claims for health claims, whether they be you know, medical or prescription drug, dental, vision they're paid out of the assets of the fund, rather than actually going out and buying an insurance policy. And then in order to access hospitals and doctors, we rent the network from, might be Blue Cross, it could be Aetna, it could be Knight Healthcare, it could be a variety of other groups. Uh, And as a result, you know, you've got claims coming in, claims are being paid, and of course, you're generating a lot of data. You're going to have people's dates of birth, their social security numbers, you're going to have all their protected health information because What's coming in are all the claims information, so diagnoses, what drugs they're on, what medical conditions they have, et cetera. Then on the pension side of things, you have people's social security numbers again, dates of birth, beneficiaries. You have this for all their dependents often too. Uh, and then of course we have all their account information, uh, where their money's being held, how much money they have. So as a result, uh, it's a treasure trove essentially of what we would call PHI or PII, which is personally identifiable information. And these plans, while some of them are what we would call self-administered in the sense that the trustees may hire um, their own employees to operate the fund, most of the time they hire third parties. So they hire an administrator who processes the claims. But then you have an auditor who deals with the fund and has to produce an audit. For pension plans, you have an actuary. The actuary has to look at the funding of the plan. And then they're getting data. They're often also looking at disability determination. Then you have attorneys you have investment managers so you have all of this phi or pai that's not only being generated but it's being passed around between all of these vendors and sort of the ecosystem that serves these plants uh, so there's data everywhere uh, yeah. so as a result the department of labor has come in and said hey look you guys need to be paying attention to this and you need to have formal protocols to make sure that it's being
0: Absolutely, and I think that's a perfect segue into my next question, which which is with all of this personally identifiable, uh, excuse me, personally identifiable information (PII) being held by various entities and third party administrators, how vulnerable is that information?
1: So, I mean, it's probably a question best answered by you know people who are in the cybersecurity field, but you know, just in general, you hear about hacks all the time. Uh, you hear about them in the media, uh, and the reason you hear about them in the media is that uh, under HIPAA rules, uh, there's a requirement that if so many participants or individuals' information is breached within a geographical area, the news media actually has to be notified. Uh, But also, if you were to go on, the government maintains, uh, various government agencies maintain websites of active breaches, and, I mean, you could be there for days, all these breaches that come through. So, unfortunately, you know, criminals tend to be, you know, a few steps ahead of everybody else, Um, but there are a variety of things that can be done. This information and uh, not only is that captured in the Department of Labor's best practices, uh, it's also in other industry standards. Which, um, you know, when you, if you look at the DOL's guidance here, it's heavily borrowed uh, from a lot of these uh, outside agencies and kind of third parties that come up with these sort of cybersecurity recommendations.
0: Now, let's talk about that, guide, that guidance and those guidelines for a minute. What does that entail? I mean, are those steps laid out for us? Um, kind of go into that a little bit if you would.
1: There are. So uh, the DOL's guidance largely borrowed uh, from the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. So NIST put out what they call the cybersecurity framework that could be used by small businesses, sometimes perhaps large businesses, uh, to kind of adopt a formal process to protect their data and their information. Uh, This is also similarly related to other audits that a lot of large organizations undergo, uh, such as a SOC 2, which is a service organizational control audit. Uh, or, uh, you know, some standards that tend to be a little bit more European-based, but ISO 2701, uh, you often see, for example, like auto suppliers will say, hey, we're certified in this. Um, and those are, you know, essentially saying, hey, look, we meet minimum standards for protection of data. Um, but what the Department of Labor has largely put out there are, are kind of, some of them are very common-sense things, such as, you know, rotating your passwords, uh, using multi-factor identification. Uh, secure email systems, um, there's a variety of providers that put out, um, you know, systems that you can use um, that allow you to secure email. Uh, now, people sometimes find them irritating. These are those things where you, you get an email and it says, well, it's a secure envelope or you got to go to a secure portal and you can't just open it in your inbox. you got to go log in uh, and you have to get a token or you have to do some sort of challenge to verify your identity. Uh, but these are some of the ways that that information can be secured. Another way is, of course, de-identifying the information. So uh, in our particular cases with our clients, what is often done by administrators uh, or other parties that have PHI is they de-identify it. So in other words, they're taking, for example, maybe someone's health claims information. We're taking away the person's name, uh, maybe their dates of birth and Social Security number, and they create a unique identifier for them. Uh, So it's just a bunch of numbers. You might see a bunch of claims information about somebody's health conditions. Uh, but you're not actually seeing their name or anything that could identify them. And then the department went through some additional steps with regard to technology that uh, we can cover in a little
0: bit more detail. Absolutely, and I guess, you know, what is Novara Law's role in all of this? You know, if one of our clients um, identifies a breach, what are the next steps?
1: So interestingly, we actually went through one of these. Um, so earlier this year, uh, we had a vendor that we work with that was breached. Uh, they were hit with a ransomware virus uh, that went in and took control of their servers. Uh, So they were locked out of not only their email, uh, but all the claims and all the participant information that they house. Um, So the interesting part of this is that our clients under ERISA are are what are known as the plan sponsor, meaning they're the named fiduciary. uh, And uh, without getting too deep into the weeds of kind of the ERISA uh, minutiae here, you know, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that and said multiple times that an ERISA fiduciary essentially has the highest duty known. Uh, so they have a variety of obligations under ERISA, uh, uh, duties of loyalty, of prudence uh, to safeguard uh, not only the information, but also the assets and to act in the best interest of the plan participants. So even though a lot of our clients actually store no data whatsoever, uh, they notice obligation and the remedial obligations fall upon the client. Uh, so in our role, we had to go to this vendor and say, okay, look, you know we don't actually know what was breached because we don't have the data you do uh, but we are ultimately responsible to ensure that the statutory obligations are met in terms of providing uh, remedial notification to the individuals that were affected so we had to work in close uh, contact with them and with their attorneys because uh, they brought in specialized breach counsel uh, to go ahead and ensure that not only we knew what data was being breached uh, but also that all the notices were Done timely, and that any media notifications were done properly, and that any appropriate law enforcement agencies were notified. As there's a fairly detailed amount of notices they have to go out depending on the nature of the breach and uh, what information is breached.
0: And I guess you know my, my follow-up question to that is, bringing in you know um, different attorneys, um, do these guidelines do they have the effect of law? I, I, I guess I'm trying to you know get a get a good sense of what these guidelines actually mean.
1: Sure. So the DOL did not write formal regulation on this, um, so it doesn't carry the force of law from the sense that it's a DOL uh, regulation. However, you know, the Department of Labor is conducting audits and they're asking about cybersecurity, um, so it might as well have the force of law. Um, the other point, the uh, other element of consideration here is risk fiduciary duties. Uh, these trump everything. So yeah, even though the Department of Labor didn't say, yeah, we didn't write a regulation. Uh, it's clear that with the amount of information out there, it would be absolutely imprudent to not be taking these steps to protect that data. Uh, and those include a variety of things, not only complying with the Department of Labor's best practices, but also ensuring these risks. Uh, most of our clients, pretty much all of them, carry some level of cybersecurity insurance. Uh, and then each vendor kind of downstream in that ecosystem also has various levels of insurance, and you know, higher or lower depending on how big their risk is. Uh, for example, a group like uh, a PPO or Preferred Provider Organization or Pharmacy Benefit Manager uh, like Blue Cross or OptumRx, they're going to have a huge policy because you know, they've got an enormous amount of PHI. because you know, They're dealing with claims every day from thousands to thousands, probably millions of people, frankly, across the country. So They're going to have a massive policy, whereas, you know, the, somebody who's doing a payroll audit or a generic audit, they're going to almost see no PHI. So they're going to have some cybersecurity policy, but we would certainly wouldn't expect them to carry it at the same level as we would other providers. And on that note, that's another critical role that we play. In that Even though uh, there's another vendor uh, that likely has the information, uh, our client's cybersecurity policy serves as an umbrella. Because uh, if that vendor is breached, more often than not, our client is not the only client. There's multiple clients that have likely been impacted. So that one policy that they carry is ensuring the risk of everybody that they service. Whereas our particular policy is only benefiting one, our particular client. Uh, so there are specific notice requirements that have to be met. Uh, the carrier has to be notified with a particular period of time. Uh, and then when we have to provide them with certain updates within certain timeframes to ensure that they're involved. Uh, and then if we need to make a claim against the policy Uh, we preserved our right to do so.
0: So you talk about some of the um, trials that we've helped our own clients through. Uh, What are some of those lessons learned that we've seen, you know, seeing this play out in real life?
1: So I think we we play two significant roles here. One is reactive and the other one's proactive. Uh, So on the proactive basis, uh, all of our clients have adopted, you know, policies that are consistent with the Department of Labor's guidelines. Uh, And those require us to do things on an annual basis. Uh, So some of those include annual risk assessments. So we've developed a survey that we sent out to all of the service providers to our plans. Uh, And we ask for things like we want to see if they have an annual audit. Uh, Pretty much most of the time, anytime you have a cyber policy, the carrier does an annual penetration test. They'll try and see if they can get into your systems or your website, uh, if there's any vulnerabilities there. And if you're using like a cloud-based system, for example, like Microsoft or maybe Amazon Web, they get an independent audit and certification. So we ask for that so that we have it, and then we can at least say, look, there's been a monitoring process here. Um, because uh, while ERISA and the Department of Labor does not expect you know, fiduciaries to be perfect, the process is a key component of that. And one of the most important fiduciary duties is that of monitoring uh, and monitoring all aspects of plan operation, and this is certainly one. Uh, and then we ask about certainly access control procedures, who has access to this data, why do they have access to it, um, are they doing security reviews of their cloud stored data? And then also, uh, things like how are you getting rid of your, your data, uh, or your devices? Um, you know, you can't just take a laptop and throw it in the trash. I mean, it's gotta be wiped. Um, that's what they call a secure development, uh, life cycle program. And then we certainly talk about data encryption, uh, billion, business resiliency. Uh, do they have an operator? Like this is a, probably an example here. Um, is, you know, this particular vendor was integral to the operation they're running the thing on a daily basis from making sure claims get paid, uh, that it, that retirees pension checks go out. Uh, so from our perspective and not only meeting the legal obligations, but the first thing jumping to our mind is, Oh my goodness, like, you know, we got to make sure everybody gets paid. <laughs> so, you know, cause you have a variety of retirees here. They rely on those pension checks uh, in order to you know, pay their bills. So, you know, if the checks are a day late and on the first of the month, they're not getting paid. It's a huge issue. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that one, we didn't have any interruption in people's payment streams, uh, and also in their benefits coverage, uh, because in addition to paying claims, um, you know, while sometimes that's outsourced, almost every administrator is determining eligibility. So and that's on a monthly basis when this is happening. So if the you know an administrator, for example, who is a key component to a plan is locked out of their system, and you have a participant who goes to the doctor for themselves or for their spouse or their child. Uh, and they do an eligibility check, if there's a holdup, it, something can come back and say, well, you don't have any insurance. Uh, and then you, you can imagine if that happened to multitudes of people, uh, the issue that that could provide, not only, you know, from the fund's perspective, but certainly from the participant. You know, they're going to be like, what do you mean I don't have health coverage? And um, So that was kind of the key issue with us was kind of watching this play out. Um, and then the second component was, you know, it was an interesting dynamic working with counsel, uh, the breach counsel. Uh, because for them, they're in a very somewhat esoteric area. They're just focused on the notices uh, and saying, well, we got to get these notices out. Here's the data that was breached, and we're going to send this out. But none of the operational components for the client that really concern the client, such as the issues I just talked about, those are completely foreign to them. Uh, So we had to go through kind of a lengthy process of educating them of, hey, wait a second, you know, we need to know this stuff and know it faster, and here's why. It's not just as simple as, Uh, And I don't mean to not at all trying to diminish it, but there was a big breach several years ago, like Target. You know, people swiped a debit card and you got a letter in the mail. It says, oh, geez, you get some credit monitoring free services. And geez, you know, if you want to sign up for these, you can. Um, And certainly, you know, maybe some people had their bank accounts hit, things like that happening. But a lot of that stuff happened, you know, later. Uh, Because now at the time, these cyber criminals don't often act immediately. Sometimes they wait. Uh, where these impacts were you know very very imminent and could be on the verge of happening like tomorrow Uh, so it was essential that we kind of gathered a team together right away and dug into this so that all of our clients could not only be protected but most importantly informed about what was going on
0: you talk about that proactive approach it sounds like we're kind of going above and beyond um you know even the guidelines themselves and um, we're providing really great counseling services you know, is there anything else that the attorneys here at Navarra Law do uh, to assist their clients um, in these kinds of events?
1: So we do. Um, you know, certainly that ongoing monitoring function is one that we perform, um, and we do that in conjunction with other providers as well. Uh, we work closely with uh, the insurance carriers as well as the brokers that help us find the insurance policies to make sure that those are fine-tuned and they're appropriate for the client and the size. Um, but really, you know, this is one of many things that. Kind of doing on an ongoing basis. Uh, you know, these funds again—they have there's so much data, uh, and many of them have tremendous amount of assets. So there's a lot of risk um, that's being you know kind of managed at all times by a variety of providers. And as legal counsel, you know, in a lot of ways, we're kind of quarterbacking that. Uh, so we're working with all these different vendors to ensure that these things are uh, are taken care of, and that our trustees are able to do their fiduciary obligations. Not only administering and monitoring these plans, um, but being able to, you know, look their participants in the eyes, uh, particularly, you know, sometimes on the labor side, you know, because the business managers, the unions, they have monthly meetings, uh, you know, participants ask, uh, you know, and in fact, with related to that particular cyber breach, and you know, we attended several union meetings, uh, and then we had to answer questions, participants were saying, well, geez, you know, what am I supposed to do? Um, you know, I have a, a one-year-old with a social security number and now their social security number is hacked. How does that impact me? Um, you know, is somebody going to open up a credit card in my you know, toddler's name? Uh, so things like that. So it goes beyond just kind of the legal aspect. A lot of times we, we do really play a significant role as counselors as well. Uh, so we kind of try and go above and beyond and, and not just help uh, the trustees, but also really the end users and the ultimate clients. Are, yes, they're the Board of Trustees, but really uh, the client is the participant. It's the individuals who are members of these funds who are going to receive these benefits and look to us as well as the other providers to ensure that the benefits that they've earned and they've worked so hard for are going to be there for them when they need them.
0: These sound like very important things that we all need to stay on top of. You know, I think we have a lot of experts here at Novara Law who uh, would love to be in touch with. Alliance. And so if, for example, you know, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? What's your email address?
1: Uh, so my email is POC at NavarraLaw.com. Um, so certainly we're, we're always willing to help anyone that, that needs it. Um, we do a lot of this work. Uh, you know, we're one of the larger players when it comes to the, certainly the multi-employer in the Taft-Hartley space. Uh, you know, we represent um, you know, over 100 plans across the country. Uh, so we have a national practice in this area. Um, So the benefit of that to our clients is that, you know, we see a lot of things. So we kind of know what's going on in the market, uh, not only on the West Coast, but in the South and the Midwest and the East as well. Uh, So we can bring that knowledge as well as that network of contacts to bear on their behalf.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And that is all the time we have. We hope you learned something on this episode of the Novara Law Podcast. Check us out next time on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search Novara Law Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.